Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. And welcome back to another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus and joined by my friend, Brad Stolberg. Brad, another beautiful day. How's everything going? Things are going well. Things are going well, at least at an arm's length. Beyond that, um, the world is where the world is. And a lot of people, myself included sometimes, are feeling a bit burnt out. And we figured that that would be a wise thing to talk about this week. So we are going to talk about burnout. So I think this is highly relevant because... A, people are feeling this way, but I think they're not used to feeling this way in in the situation that they are. What I mean by that is we're used to feeling burnout by doing too much work, right? By working ourselves to death, et cetera, et cetera. Well, some people might be doing that now. They might be wondering, why do I feel burnt out when I'm largely staying at home, where I'm, you know, around my family more? where I'm not going into the office. It it doesn't make sense. They're almost made to feel like they've been on vacation. A lot of bosses are kind of giving that dictation, but it certainly doesn't feel like that. So let's dive into maybe what burnout is first. So I like to think about burnout in a few ways. And generally, if you think of this as like overlapping circles in a Venn diagram, some people have all of these circles and they're square in the middle. Some might only have a few. So one way is uh, prolonged apathy. So not feeling motivated to do a specific part of your life. If we're talking about this in a work context, not at all feeling motivated about work. Another one of those overlapping diagrams is having this feeling where you dread the idea of working, but when you're not working, you also feel dread. You feel like you should be working. A third area of overlap is feeling like you're constantly in this gray area where you're never really getting into a flow state working at the top of your capacity, but you're also never really resting. So everything just kind of bleeds into each other. I think a lot of people are feeling that right now. And then finally, the fourth way to think about burnout is like a very low level depression that is missing some of the more um, severe elements of depression. So you're not necessarily having existential distress or thoughts about self-harm or extreme emotional sadness pop up, but you are feeling that really chronic just sense of, oh, it's really hard to get out of bed. Couldn't have summed it up better. I think that the way I would describe it is almost experiencing chronic stress. It's not high-level stress necessarily. It's just chronic stress that just keeps you in that spot where apathy builds, where simple things kind of become difficult, where things that you used to take for granted, um, you know, take a mountain to get over. And and that's what I think a lot of people are feeling right now because, you know... And it's prolonged too. I think I want to just interject on, on like two quick points there because you're spot on. It's more than just a day. People have bad days. Um, I think if you were to actually like try to diagnose this in someone you're probably looking at about two weeks. I know that's what they use in clinical psychology for things like depression and anxiety. And then another thing, because I think it's just really important to to draw some lines in the sand here, another thing that I would say separates 
oh, I'm burnt out, which you should still take seriously, but from depression, is that burnout is generally narrow in one element of your life. So it's really hard to do anything for work, or it's really hard to do anything for family. Depression is far-reaching. So depression is not only can I not do anything for work, but I can't even start a load of laundry. I can't even brush my teeth. I don't even want to shower. Um, That can be really bad burnout. But generally speaking, burnout at least starts in one domain of your life, whereas something like a depression tends to be more far-reaching. I just wanted to specify there, Steve. Brad, I just want to make it clear that chronic means prolonged. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. There you go. Getting corrected <laughs> by the wordsmith in the duo, for those of you that know us. So, but, you know... I, only I, Steve could see the hours and hours I spend editing our newsletter. Um, but I appreciate that live public edit, my good friend, Steve. There you go. You got the newsletter editing. I got the podcast editing. So if anybody has any complaints on either of those, now you know what we do behind the scenes. Um, anyways, I, I, I think, you know, that last point you made, which is, it starts in one domain is important because burnout can spread to other domains. If if the thing that I like doing or the thing that I define myself uh, by to a degree, I'm feeling burned out in, then that's going to slowly seep into the rest of my life, right? So I, I think that is a key distinction of of uh, burnout and depression. Depression is a general malaise all the time you know, prolonged burnout can head towards that degree, but it doesn't start there. And I think as we kind of unpack this, this burnout phenomena, I think it's under, it's important to understand some of the biology. Well, we don't know all of it. What is pretty interesting though, is that burnout almost from a hormonal standpoint looks like, um, it's almost like both sides of the uh, equation, in terms of arousal, cortisol, stress hormones, both are dampened, right? So we tend to think of stress as, oh, this negative thing. Cortisol is this negative thing. But it's actually a good thing in a lot of ways because it's released when we need some energy, right? Cortisol releases energy. That's kind of its job to do. But if we never get that bump when we need it, that's kind of what happens in burnout. So when Brad Brad talks about this general malaise, right? This finding yourself in the middle where you're not super stressed but you can't recover, that's what we're talking about. It's generally good to be able to go high stress and then come out of it or recover and then come back. What you find in burnout is you can't even get to that high stress part. Mm -hmm. It's nature's law. I mean, a very healthy heart rhythm isn't flatline. Flatline is literally you're dead. A healthy heart rhythm is up and down, up and down. You want to have heart rate variability. Uh, So it's no surprise that from a psychological standpoint, burnout would kind of look like this flatline, this chronic gray. So I think that we've, we've harped enough on burnout. Burnout sucks. It's not fun. The good news is that it's reversible. And Steve and I believe that we have some pretty solid hypotheses as to why so many people are feeling burnt out right now, even though, as Steve mentioned, 
we're not working in normal ways and nothing really feels high stress. So how about I just throw out a laundry list of these things, Steve, and then you can um, either add to the list and or choose where to dive in. All right, here we go. So temporal boundaries are gone. You no longer have clean cuts between, oh, this is when I start work and this is when I end work. This is when I start family time and this is when I end family time. In addition to those temporal boundaries being gone, for many people, physical boundaries are gone. So you used to go into the office for work. Now work happens at home. Lots of places of intellectual escape, such as I read the New York Times or I read the Wall Street Journal, those have just become places where we get stressed out because the only thing that's being covered from every single angle is COVID or the political situation, uh, at least here in America. So that's no fun. Other areas of escapism, like sports. Well, sports either suck because the leagues haven't figured out how to do it in a way that's even remotely entertaining, or in the case of the NBA, uh, it's just getting underway and the NBA is still somewhat political. Now, I am so happy that the NBA is back and that the players are taking a stand, but it's still a reminder, hey, why aren't there fans in the stands? Why like, why are all these players having to take a stand because of the cluster you-know-what that is happening with social justice in America? It's not escape. So it's really hard to escape. All the temporal boundaries are gone and we don't have an endpoint. Now, if you step back, the good news is let's normalize a bit. Of course, you're feeling like shit. How could you not? Like The only times that I'm not feeling like shit are when I'm not thinking about that stuff and I'm lost in the flow of what I'm doing. And I think we're going to get to that is a really important way out right now. Um, so Steve, what am I missing? I'm sure there's other things that are contributing to burnout, but those felt like the big four to me. So it's the boundaries, the lack of escapism, the no end date, and the kind of everything feeling like it's this mishmash of just gray, particularly here in America, where there's a hostile political environment. Um, I won't go into my stance on that other than I feel like the current leadership blows. I just went into my stance on that. Um, <laughs> it's tough. Man, you're going, you're going, you're doing great on this podcast, Brad. Well, I'm um, trying to embody what people are feeling and what I'm feeling on my bad days. Like if we're going to get real, it's like, oh, like for fuck's sake, like the guy's talking about injecting ourselves with bleach, um, saying that the election is rigged. I am behind on work because I just got sucked into reading about this on my Twitter feed. And when I try to shut down work to go spend time with my two and a half year old, my computer in the room next door is like calling my name. So I go in, I check my email, even though I know I don't want to be on email and boom, you know, preach. Um, the, The only thing I'd add is I am very much looking forward to when I no longer have to really pay attention to politics. Right. Um, and well, what I want to pull on that thread. Like, why do you feel like you have to pay attention right now? You can vote and be done. I, I mean, I can, but it's, it's part of the 24 seven cycle. Like, there's no, you just mentioned it there. There's no escaping it. And it, and largely, this is the first time that it, it, not, maybe not the first time, but this is a time where it directly impacts me. Right. Most of the time, things happen and it's an, indirect impact right it's it's 
you know, their policies matter, but like in the grand scheme of things, like it's going to impact things a little bit that I deal with on a day to day basis. But now dealing with COVID and death and going back to work and my wife being, you know, forced back into school and all that stuff, like not only presidential, but governors and, you know, city judges and mayors and stuff, all of their decisions are impacting my day to day and what I can do and what I cannot do. Yeah. So, and I think it's worth calling out too. You know, I, I'm, I've only been in North Carolina for a little while, so I still have my, um, my coastal liberal views, but I think that that's a really, and there's nothing wrong with it because I'm the same way, but I think that's a really good example of when, when people talk about privilege and get all hostile you shouldn't apologize for it. You've worked really freaking hard. You were born into a middle-class family. But I think that um, what's making this moment unique is that even people like me and you have had the privilege of not being so impacted by these decisions are now getting impacted. So it affects everyone unless you're the CEO of freaking Microsoft or Apple. Yep. Which if they're listening, please reach out and contact us. Um, Yeah, we could use a sponsor for the podcast. (laughs) Jeff Bezos, I know you want to be a better performer and you need to sleep more than four hours. Uh, all right. Uh, interesting. I don't know where to go from there, but let's let's try this. I think that, you know, I think that kind of gets to what all of us are feeling in different different levels. And I think that when we say always on, um, Going with the going with the ebb and flow, not having control, which is something I think you tiptoed around, but is important when it comes to burnout, is I think another thing that we're dealing with is our life is outside of is out of our hands. Now that is true to a degree all the time, but generally we have some predictability about it, right? I know what my work is. I know what job I signed up to do. I know what rough hours they're supposed to be, even in an abnormal job like mine with coaching. I understand that. But now, whether, let's say, let's take the university, whether the university goes back or not is up to a university president president who is influenced by policies at the governor, who is influenced by policies um, you know, nationwide. All of, you know, the whether athletics goes back or not is influenced by athletic director, university president, uh, whether the, you know, Donald Trump tweets about it, um, the conferences. There's all these different things that are making decisions and not, you know, always making, I'll call them thoughtful decisions, but they change their mind a, a lot. And Brad, as you know, with me talking to you regularly, is one day it could mean A, and then two days later it could mean B. And that leaves me in a spot where I'm leading and guiding, but don't have any control whatsoever over the process, over a decision, over anything on what could occur. So that lack of a control, I think, impacts burnout as well. And even if you're somebody that has more control because maybe you are an entrepreneur or you're a freelancer and in some shape or form you work for yourself, well, if you have kids, then whether or not they're going to be in school is largely out of your control. If it is in your control, then you're faced with the stress of making that decision where there's really no right answer. So it, it seems like regardless of where you sit, who you are, every which way you turn, there are these 
either bite-sized chunks of stress, if you're lucky, and if you're not lucky, larger sources of stress, which gets us back to where we started with this chronic kind of stress. So the key to reversing burnout, if you're not feeling burnt out right now, preventing it is to try to unwind some of those sources of stress. And I think that in some cases, you can do that actively, such as setting boundaries where there are none and adhering to them. And in other cases, I think you do it passively by simply choosing not to engage. I I didn't do it intentionally, but um, I think I opened up this podcast. I think, Steve, you asked me how I was doing, and I said, I'm doing great at an arm's length. And that's true. And literally, if I hold out my arm and it's just my... Let's see. Right now, what's in front of me? My computer, my microphone, I'm talking to Steve. If I'm in the zone focusing on this, life is good. Now, the minute I get beyond that, I'm suddenly out into the world. And again, it's a lot of privilege to be able to stay at an arm's length. And let's call a spade a spade. I think most people listening to this podcast have the ability to stay at an arm's length most of the time. And I think something that we all do, myself included, is we confuse worrying about something or gawking at something, especially on the internet, with doing something. And it's not. Those are two very different things. And the former just leads to that chronic stress that you're choosing to engage in, whereas the latter might actually help. And the couple times... uh, I'll end my rant in a minute, Steve, I promise. But the, the times that I've actually caught myself and started to do something, so I reached out to a local candidate. So instead of looking at what the the idiot running for one party in my district was tweeting about. Um, he literally was tweeting how he was so happy that he visited the fear, i.e. Hitler's vacation spot. And I was just like getting in such a bad mood, looking at my kid being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And I caught myself and I said, I'm going to email the opposing candidate and say, hey, I'm new here. I know a little bit about your policies. They seem good enough. I'm completely abhorred by your opponent. What can I do to help? And then I actually started helping. I started doing some copywriting for them. And I'll tell you what, in the moments I was copywriting, I was not feeling burnt out because I was taking action instead of worrying. All right, Steve, you got you to parse that all out for the, the listeners. You're, you're not only editing the show on the back end, you're editing me in real time. So, you know, that, that example right there, I think is a great example of something we talked about in peak performance. Um, Sometimes to get out of burnout, it helps to do something that is for something greater than yourself, that is for something for others. You know, in peak performance, I believe I used an example of how what got me out of burnout as an athlete was going into coaching, right? It changed my perspective on the same sport that I was doing because I said, you know what? I'm going to help people out. And the research behind that is really good. It's when we, you know, volunteer, when we help others out, it helps get, gets us out of that kind of burnout straight uh, stage. It takes us out of this perspective or it gives us perspective. The other thing that I'll note there is that you're taking something that is uncontrollable Brad. And you're saying, oh, you know, this guy is tweeting. I can't do anything about it except angry tweet back, which really isn't taking action. And you're giving, you're making it into a controllable stress, right? I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to help support the other person. Like, even if it's minor things, 
And then following through on that, which I think is important, gives you that sense of like relief. Again, stress isn't bad, as you've heard us or read us harp on over and over again, but it's having these nice ebbs and flows. And what you can't get caught into is being stressed without having some sort of outlet to let that come back down to normal. And, you know... I'll give you one one example, one one research that I that is kind of related um, that I think is really interesting on this this topic is that when when researchers have looked at those surviving um, unbelievable horrors like Holocaust, prisoner of war, ex- um, even going back into you know the colonization of Jamestown, which was everybody you know, was dying left and right. What they what they found is that the ability to wrestle back some sort of control or meaning during those times um, is paramount to survival. There's actually, a, in the research world, a, a term called give up-itis, which basically means people died because they gave up. Now I'm not we're not saying oh they gave up they weren't strong enough. We're saying they didn't have any control and action that they could take. It just became overwhelming, right? And probably rightfully so in those endeavors. And even Viktor Frankl is famous for um, man's search for meaning. And much of his work he talks about uh how the Holocaust survivors um were able to maintain routines uh, keep their keep you know keep themselves having some semblance of control no no matter how small it was and then that plays a role in terms of handling adversity and I think well that's at the extreme end that still applies in our own you know small ways in our uh, in the burnout that we might be facing. I think that another thing worth mentioning and then maybe we we tie a bow on this particular variety of stress which is the stress of of what's happening around you that you can't control is i will um i'll tell a little story about an interaction that i had with my coach slash therapist that i've been working with some quite some time now and it was very much around this issue of getting lost in the kind of the swamp of social media and politics, and then with certain family members arguing. And even just now, I caught myself doing it when I called Donald Trump a buffoon or whatever I called him. And I'll tell you what that is. She told me that this stuff is like a mosquito bite. And scratching it feels really, really, really good when you're scratching it. Oh, I called Trump a buffoon. Or I called that family member and I told them, I can't believe that you're still supporting this person. Scratch, scratch, scratching. And listen, if you're a Trump supporter, you probably feel the same way about me and your other family members. But it's the same thing. You're scratching that mosquito bite. And it feels great while you're scratching it. And it's like this itch that you just pull up Twitter because you want to scratch it some more. And then you keep scratching it. And then you're finally done scratching it. And all that you're left with is this enormous gaping hole on your leg that kind of feels like crap. So rather than scratch the mosquito bite, when you feel that itch, what you ought to do is go get some cream in the case of a really bad bug bite, some kind of like probably, you know, anti-inflammatory steroid cream, put the cream on, put a bandaid on it so you won't itch it and get on with your life. 
And I think that's what we're saying in many more words is that use that feeling of an itch to either do something about it, productive, i.e. put the cream and Band-Aid on and then get on with your life, shut it down. Um, it's a lot easier said than done. But the more that you pay attention to what you get when you scratch an itch, the more likely you are to realize that scratching actually doesn't do anything good. It just leaves you with an like a, a, a ugly hole. So I love I love the analogy. I think that that makes a lot of sense. You know, but it's hard not to scratch the mosquito bite. It is. I mean, it's <laughs> and it's 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 biological to a degree, right? Whether we can we can call that scratch dopamine or whether we could call it like even your amygdala threat response right so uh, one of the interesting things and i'm gonna science nerd out on you as you give the practical analogies but one of the things that is really interesting on burnout is that the area in the brain related to stress uh sensing threats like processing emotional threats the amygdala is generally um, enlarged or hyperactivated in, in burnout individuals. But more so, it's not necessarily the hyperactivation that is, you know, the problem that they're finding. It's more so they have a hard time regulating it to turn it down or, or even to decree turn it up. And the reason is there's a decrease in connection between the amygdala that threat area and the prefrontal cortex kind of self-control, you know, regulation type area. So we have this weakened bond. And in your analogy, that's akin to being able to, you know, feel the threat and it might or feel the itch and it might feel even worse because we're hyper responsive to it. But then having something to do with it, we can, we can regulate it by putting the, the lotion anti-inflammatory cream. If we don't have the regulation skills or strategies, then we're not like, that's what burnout is all about. So yeah. I think when, when we and talk that's about back it, to you're not being helpless, like you're, you have an action to do to remedy it. Right, right. And yeah. I, I exactly. I think that's and man, what the ancient wisdom traditions, I'm just going to interject here, you know, well, you go the science road. They were so on top of this because in, in maybe in the future, if, if listeners want, we'll do a deep dive on like contemplation, reflection, meditation. But one of the best definitions that I've ever gotten about why you meditate is so you can let an itch be there and learn that you don't have to scratch it and relate to it more wisely. And that's like 2,500 years ago written in books. Um, and what I'm hearing, you know, the, the historical Buddha say there is literally like, oh, your amygdala is overreacting. We need to sit down and reestablish that connection to train it to not immediately react and instead be able to watch, observe, and then take a more wise action. Bring in the philosophy, ancient wisdom, I'll bring the science. I love it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's nice how all this stuff intersects, right? Where it's not just science, it's not just experience, it's, it's everything kind of comes together and you're just like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Totally. Uh, and it's in, in everything coming together, it's like, um, man, if you were to sum up, hopefully, if you were to sum up this podcast, it would be eat your vegetables, move your body, have some kind of contemplative practice read the science, ask yourself how might you be wrong and take time for community. 
Um, that is just a 40 second plug. You know, I, as I said, we need a sponsor. So if you're listening and you want to sponsor the podcast, this current podcast is sponsored by Brad and Steve's Healthy Habits. Eat your vegetables, <laughs> contemplate, exercise, have some friends, build some community, and read some science. All right, back to our show. <laughs> Sorry, guys, we're a little bit all over the place. I am, I, you know, another symptom of burnout apparently is slap happiness. Um, but as Steve was saying it is fascinating how you see these patterns and they make a lot of sense. And I think the pattern here is really around, um, as Steve was so eloquently saying before I cut him off, being able to reestablish that connection with the more insightful, wise, compassionate part of your brain versus just the part that wants to scratch. All right. I'm not sure where to go after that um, that uh, brief commercial break, advertisement break turned into life lesson. But let's, let's dive in a little bit. We've kind of danced around this a little bit about what we can do. So we, now we know, okay, we need a semblance of control. We need to reestablish that connection between you know, the feeling, the thing, the threat, the itch, and then having something to do about it. What are those things that we can do to reestablish that? I'm going to, I'm going to throw out the most obvious one, which is having some semblance of routine. I knew it. I thought you were going to say running, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, running is great though. If it's part of your routine, it can get you out of this, right? Um, but you, you know, when do, when do I feel the most burnout from running? I'll tell you when in the summers of Houston, Texas, where it's a thousand degrees and a hundred percent humidity. So even there, my routine has to adjust because this thing that normally fills my bucket sometimes does not fill my bucket because I stand at the door and I'm like, gosh, I don't want to sweat to death today. So, you know, let's, let's talk about how routine, um, impacts that. And I think routine has this, you know, we've talked about it in past podcasts, et cetera, but what it does is it gives you control and predictability. Even if it's something that your routine is something as simple as I wake up, get my morning coffee, and then I start the day, right? It gives your life some sort of grounding foundation off of which to build. And I, and think, I think that right now too, the boundary element is super important. Right. Because like in addition, so, so people might be listening and saying, oh, well, I've kept my routine, but I'm still feeling this, this gray zone. And routine isn't just stuff that you intentionally do. Like I make my morning coffee. I have my run. Routine is also stuff that historically has been programmed into your life that now has changed. So the biggest example I can think of is for a lot of people, it's I commute to work and now you don't commute to work. But unless you fill that space with some other kind of boundary between home and work, guess what? Those two things are going to encroach upon each other. And and I think that's the key there is it's not so much the beginning, but the end that has been encroached upon that we're, we're used to, right? Normally, there's a clear-cut boundary, right, between work and non-work. And I know, Brad, as a writer, like you haven't always had this clear-cut boundary. As a coach... I don't work normal hours ever. Right. So you could almost say it's easier for us because we're more practiced at this 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 gray area. And I love how you said it's so funny, right? Because I 
at first I was nodding and then I'm like, well, wait, it's all just blurring because you said that it's particularly important for the end. But if the end of home also isn't clear and the end of work isn't clear, then of course you're left with this mishmash that creates that gray zone. Yep. And that's, that's where I think a lot of us are. So it's, it's, it's really figuring out how to, how to define when the day ends and then having something to, to do that. You know, what I found that I've, I've done a lot with my wife is we end practically every day the, the same in terms of transitioning, which is like transition to a walk and dinner, you know, and it's something outside leaving phones at home, um, decompressing and talking about the day, right? Then eating or vice versa. And then after that, it's just relaxing by reading a book or watching TV or doing whatever we want. But there's a clear transition point and a decompression point for both of us if something that we went through that day is something we need to work on or talk about then we have you know a 30 minute to to 45 minute walk to you know discuss that if we we want and then when we get back it's like okay all of that is in the past time to decompress till we sleep and then get up and start the day again so i love that and i'm so happy for you and hillary For those of you that are listening that are like, oh, shit, I need to see a therapist or a marriage and family counselor because I'm not doing that with my wife. Well, let me assure you, we have a two and a half year old. There is no 45 minute walk. Talk about the day. Those days are long and gone. So that while Steve's transition and I'm giving him a hard time really does sound like a wonderful transition. It doesn't have to be that perfect because for a lot of people, it can't be. For me and my wife, the transition is literally, we shut down our laptops. Uh, And my wife's not as good about this as I am. So I used to put it on sleep, but I found that putting it on sleep is way too easy just to sneak into the other room and open it. But shutting it down, it's an older computer. It takes time to load up. I have to reopen all my browsers. It's just one extra step that I don't want to do. So most days, the transition period is literally my laptop shut down, then it's into the chaos of two-and-a-half-year-old life. That's why I don't have a kid yet, and I don't have to deal with that. (laughs) But, you know, I I think that, you know, one of the things I think when we talk about routines a lot of times, or when anybody talks about routines, we get caught up in, like, oh, what's the magic one? What's special? And it's figuring out what what works for you? You know, our routine in the morning isn't complicated. It's very simple. Get up, get out for a run. Some days that means 20 minutes. Some days that means an hour run. And and it just kind of depends, right? And there's no set time to get up or whatever have you. I mean, there's a rough time, but you know what I mean. Um, and there it's not complicated. We're just like, we need some sort of exercise first. And sometimes it doesn't even, a a run doesn't even happen, right? And it's something smaller and easier and takes 10 minutes, right? But I think like having something in your life that demarks those transition points is important. And that transition can be something as simple as turning your computer off or turning your phone off or leaving it in the other room when when you mark that time period. Or, you know, for a work transition, it's having what I've found a lot of times now nowadays is I leave my computer in my office 
and it just stays there. And then when I sit down in, in my office, that marks my transition to work. I think so. And I think that in addition to those like hard transition boundaries that I'm I'm hearing you describe and, and that I was describing too, which are very much about day to day. I think it's also important to mark the weekend, which again used to be marked for a lot of people by, well, I don't go into the office on the weekend. But now if you're working from home or you at least have reduced office hours, that no longer is the automatic marker. So I wrote about this in a column for Outside Magazine a couple months ago that for our family, it was just every Friday night was pizza night. <laughs> like We really looked forward to it. There's some really good pizza places. It's a food that my son will mostly eat without an argument. My wife and I love it. And it was something to mark the start of the weekend. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's like, well, can you turn your phone off on Saturday? Can you do a digital Sabbath? Are there things that seem impossible that you dread doing? Again, burnout is not just dreading work, but also dreading not working. Are there things that seem impossible that you dread doing that you can experiment with doing to create some structure and ritual and routine that allows you to separate work time from relaxation time from being engrossed in the 24-7 news cycle time. Uh, another way to think about it, and more of the Eastern wisdom way, is being versus doing time. So it's really easy just to have your entire week be doing time. But how do you make sure that you're creating some being time so that your, you know, your life's EKG looks like a healthy heart with doing, being, doing, being... And it's not just this gray, I'm kind of a little bit of both always. And this is hard stuff. It's a lot easier to talk about than to do. I mean, I hope that we're just providing you all with some frameworks for how to think about this and how to discuss this with your colleagues, your friends, your family members. Um, But it's hard stuff. I mean, that's why I'm joking around running advertisements for our own show because (laughs) I can't take myself too seriously because if I shoot, I don't know, 60% on this, it's a good week. Yeah, you know, I think that's a good um, note to to make is that we're taught, we're giving you frameworks to think about this stuff, um, but we struggle with it as well. So one of the things that I often see is people are like, okay, I'll do this, 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 and this for burnout. And then they start doing that and then they don't have the motivation or don't have the ability to do some of those things. And then they feel bad or worse because they can't do these things that, which are quote unquote the solution and it makes it feel worse. So I think regardless of what you're trying to do or what you take away is make sure it's almost like going back to that, what we talked about at the beginning, which is, make it the smallest thing that you can control or the smallest thing that you can take action on, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whatever that first step is, that is it, right? If that first step is as simple as at 9 p.m., I'm leaving my phone in the other room or turning it off, fine. If it's not until 10 o'clock, fine. Choose something that like you know you can do and make that your starting process, right? And then from there... You know, hopefully you can build off of that and create something that is um, sustainable and something that, you know, can last. Yeah, I love it. I don't have much to add, um, much to add to that, that way of thinking about it and and bringing that kind of self-discipline, but also marrying it with, with self-compassion. 
So, all right, back to my initial laundry list. So we hit on boundaries. We hit on passive, like non-doing or not engaging in the various itches we have in our life. Um, what would you say about the no endpoint to this? And I'm curious because I go back and forth, and this is a fairly unprecedented time, so it's hard to say what the right answer is. I go back and forth between creating aid stations. So for those of you that are not in, in, in the running world, an aid station is literally every mile in a big race, you stop and you can get a drink or what, what have you. And you can run from aid station to aid station and kind of have to forget about the end. So that feels really good. But that's also kind of illusion because sometimes I zoom out and I'm like, wait, this is a chance for me to really practice like the hard stuff of being a human, which is I can tell you the end date to this. It's when I die. And yes, COVID will end, but then there'll be the next stressor. So it's like this for me anyways, at it, it, my point of development as a human being, I'm, I'm, I'm not zen enough to get rid of those mile markers, but I'm starting to get just old and wise enough to realize that, hey, those mile markers are kind of an illusion. So they can be helpful to insert, but there's also got to be some work to just become more okay with not knowing when this thing ends because after this thing, there's going to be the next thing. That's interesting. So I take it kind of a combination. Um, what I've been finding myself doing is I take the most probable, quote unquote, endpoint or normal thing that will return. Okay. So to give you an example, I'm going to give you a running example because that's what I do. If we look at road racing in the fall. Not going to happen, right? Cross-country season. Not going to happen. Okay, that's just in my head. We go forward. Uh, indoor season. Not going to happen, right? It might, but I'm just crossing it off because it's the probability is too low. So when's the first time we have a season, a kind of close nor to normal return, maybe? I think our best chance is an outdoor track season, going May, June, July, whenever it is, August, whatever. It might be modified, but I feel, you know, based on everything I know, relatively okay that, you know, that's our first real good shot, okay? So that that starts it. That's not my concrete, right? It's almost like I'm starting the race thinking, you know what? I think this will be a half marathon, but if it's a marathon, I'll be prepared. I'll, I'm okay with that. Like, I'll adjust. And then once I have that kind of concrete, like this is a decent likelihood, then I treat it like I would being in the middle of a race that sucks, which is if I'm starting to hurt, starting to doubt that I can continue, starting to look for a hole to step in, then I break it down into the, the manageable piece. You mentioned the aid station. You know, I when I run, I break it down into either... Uh, visual reminders or, you know, mile markers where I just say get to the next mile or get to the next turn or get to the next tree or just stay close enough to this guy ahead of me for the next couple minutes. Like whatever I can do to break it down into manageable chunks where I also have some sort of guideline and goal. So if I say get to the next turn, for example, in the middle of a race, I'm not saying just survive until the next turn. I'm saying, Hey, 
I'm going to try and keep this pace or effort through this next turn. And then when I get to the turn, I'll reevaluate where I'm at. And I think that is that that's how I handle it with the knowledge and understanding that stress changes our perception and changes our sensation of, you know, time, distance, all that stuff. There's some really cool research that shows, you know, if I come up to a hill and I'm feeling really fatigued, I will literally think that that hill is much steeper than if I started fresh at the bottom of that hill full of energy, right? So my perception gets shifts. The same thing applies to what we're doing now. So that's why I think giving yourself bite-sized pieces, sometimes very small bite-sized pieces of what to focus on with a just a dangling carrot of something that might be normal or something that might be a quote-unquote endpoint um, in the back of my head is how I, I kind of handle it. Yeah, and I, I think that's great. And I, I'm looking for something to add and coming up short because I think that that's, that's really wise, Steve. And, and when I reflect on when I'm at my best, how I handle it, it's really similar, which is knowing that the long game is like death really is the, the end mile marker and there always is a next thing. But also realizing that we have to put these kind of um, milestone markers on there. Otherwise, you know, you're not creating any boundaries in your life. So I think it's like an acceptance that, yeah, there's always a next thing, but also the wisdom, not just to to like become existentially distressed and say, oh my God, like it's just all a blur until I die. No, it's not. It is really good to have those mile markers. But if you can, if you, once you stop telling yourself there's going to be an end to this race, immediately you have a whole new sense of freedom. Actually, at first, generally, you experience like this terrible fear, like, oh shit, there's not going to be an end to this race. And then you have a sense of freedom. And I think that's important to, to, to think about. Yeah, I like how you uh, frame that. You definitely have an uh, oh shit moment first. Yeah, and that's why. And in, in back to our um, back to my slap happy um, healthy habit sponsorship. I think that gets back to the importance of eating your vegetables, exercising in community, and like seriously having these foundational habits that help carry you through those oh shit moments, and investing in support structures to carry you through those oh shit moments. Because um, burnout is not about eliminating negative feelings. Excuse me. Bur- like Getting over burnout is not about in- eliminating negative feelings. It's not about getting rid of ocean moments. It's not about always being motivated. It's not about waking up at 4 a.m. ready to crush it every day. I would argue that preventing burnout is actually about accepting that sometimes things are really hard and being able to ride those waves instead of get swallowed by them. Yep. And I think part of that is being able to zoom out and zoom in when you need to. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I think that's like a really good strategy. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. What else are what else are we missing? I'm going through my thing. We we kind of touched so we talked about routine. We touched on the zooming in, zooming out, you know, what are you focusing on? We talked about purpose and meaning to degree. Um, which I think is important, taking yourself uh, out of the your own like k- kind of trapped in your own world. 
um, and giving yourself perspective. We talked about alternating stress and rest and how it's not getting stuck in that in-between zone um, where you're too stressed and also not recovered enough. Um, what what else were we, are we missing here, Brad? Yeah, I'm racking my brain too. I think that I think that we've done a decent job helping folks, you know, arming folks, I should say, with with a toolkit of concepts to think about how to navigate burnout. I, I just really would come back to those three big areas, which is the boundaries, the notion of vacillating between stress and rest and really being intentional about creating space space to rest and 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 not feeling guilty for doing so and how that interplays with boundaries right because if you don't have boundaries it's a lot harder to rest which i think is is part of the problem and then for those of you like me that um that have these itches that are really hard not to scratch it's just paying really close attention to what you get from all that scratching and if you do that enough times, you start scratching a little bit less and you start letting those itches resolve on their own or taking wise action. And again, this is the difference between spending six hours yelling at your angry uncle about politics or spending those six hours volunteering or campaigning for a cause that you care about. And not only is the latter going to make the world a better place, but it will also help you feel better. Uh, it's really, really, really hard to not scratch those angry uncle itches, though. And I would uh, the only thing I would add there is be deliberate on putting yourself in those situations. No, I'm not talking. I'm not saying don't talk to your uncle. But a lot of those itches occur in modern day world when we're on Facebook and social media and being deliberate about putting yourself in those positions, I think um, helps when you're dealing with this kind of level of burnout. So, yeah, I I mean, I agree with you. I think that uh, all of that makes sense. Hopefully we've armed everyone with the tools and the toolkit to utilize. And hopefully you realize that, you know, there aren't any any easy answers and it's normal to feel a a degree of, of burnout. What we're trying to prevent is when you start going down that rabbit hole to prevent it from turning into a full-fledged, you know, um, disaster, right? A full-fledged chronic burnout. We're trying to catch it early and then um, alter course so that we don't. And that's what these toolkits are are all about. Every single one of us is going to experience this kind of malaise and apathy to a degree, especially right now with the world under stress. And it's not about not experiencing them and, you know, always feeling 100% and energized and waking up ready to crush it. Uh, That's unrealistic. It's about navigating those points and knowing that if you feel that way, it's okay. You just got to, you know, employ some strategies, use some of the tools and make sure that it doesn't turn into this chronic state. That is a great place to wrap it up, my man, Steve. Uh, Listeners, thank you. If you made it this far, we'll call you a diehard growth EQ plan uh, fan, (laughs) not plan. We need a better plan. Um, Steve and I did three takes to get this episode to you. We had a very slap happy day, um, but we feel like we were able to rein it in. 
So if you enjoyed some of our forays noted, and if you're like, what happened to these guys? Um, I'm not sure, but we, we will do our best to be back on our more serious game next week. Uh, until then, we appreciate your support. You know where to find us for more on the internet at Steve Magnus on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg on Twitter, www.thegrowtheq.com for the multimedia platform. And last but not least, if you enjoyed the show, please, please, please take just a couple of seconds, give us a five-star rating, leave a little review. That helps people discover the podcast will help us get sponsors so I don't have the temptation to sponsor the show with embracing the obvious healthy habits. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.